Well, I guess in the context of the COVID virus, the one word that you could really apply to how home is now is the word sanctuary, because you know, when we come home, we feel it's the only place where we don't have to worry about COVID-19. You feel more safe in your home in this you know, in this situation. You know, safety in sanctuary is you know, how the best way to describe it, really. It feels like it's a home, but it's also an office. It's it's a very weird limbo stage. In the beginning, it felt very much when lockdown first happened. It was just this limbo, chaotic space that was meant to be both, but ended up being neither. And then at some point, not exactly sure when, I kind of really had to be like, no, this is where my living space is going to be. This is my home space. This is the space where I relax. And then this one room is going to be my office space. Welcome to That Feels Like Home, a podcast by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, MODA, reaching you from Middlesex University in London. I'm Anna Baeza, and I'll be hosting the second season to explore the multiple stories around home in the current COVID crisis. This time, we're recording in less favourable conditions from our homes, so please bear with us if the sound isn't always of studio quality. And in this season, I'll be talking with historians, anthropologists, activists and practitioners to reflect on the many changes brought about this pandemic on our homes. As always, we draw inspiration from our collections to rethink the past through the lens of the present. Home is a fluid category open to multiple meanings. A house is not necessarily a home. And these fluctuating meanings really resonate now as we're all renegotiating our domestic lives in COVID-19 lockdown. So our first episode for the season is precisely going to the heart of that question. What makes a home as an idea and as a place? And to answer this, we're going to be leaping all the way to the Victorian period and then review moments in history that have been key in reconfiguring what home means in the UK. Where do ideas of domestic comfort, privacy and safety come from? How have they changed and how are they being negotiated at present? How has the design of houses shifted over time and what does it tell us about our social lives? To discuss this with us, we have two fantastic guests, Trevor Keeble and Jane Hamlet. Welcome, Trevor and Jane. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank Great you very much. Be. Pleasure to be here. And I should say that we are recording this remotely, all from our respective homes. So at times there might be noise in the background, interferences, and the sound isn't studio quality. So please bear with us. But I can assure you that the content will make up for those technical glitches. Before we get started, an introduction to Trevor and Jane. Uh, Trevor Keeble works at the University of Portsmouth, where he's Executive Dean of Creative and Cultural Industries and Professor of Design. Having initially studied interior design, he completed his Master's and PhD in the History of Design at the Royal College of Art and the Victorian Albert Museum. He was a founding member of the Modern Interiors Research Centre at Kingston University, and his research interests focus on the intersections and practices of domestic design, material culture and homemaking. Jane Hamlet is Professor of British History at Royal Holloway University of London. Her research interests include histories of society and culture in modern Britain, women and gender, the family, intimacy and emotion and material and visual culture. With Julie Marie Strange, she is currently writing a book on the history of pets in modern Britain based on the collective work for the HRC Pets and Family Life Project, which sounds really interesting. And hopefully we'll get to talk about that in the course of the podcast today.
Okay, so let's get started. Uh, Trevor and, and Jane, as you know, this season, we're interested in exploring the home as a process rather than something that's a given or fixed. And I'd like to start with this idea that homes are both an idea, but also very physical and material space. And I think this has become really obvious to lots of people right now in lockdown, and perhaps in particular due to constraints that the environment can exercise upon us when we're literally boxed within these four walls. And then there's another way in which home is also symbolic. It's coded with all sorts of social assumptions and personal meaning. So with all of this in mind, I wanted to start with some initial reflections on your part about how you think that these two components of the home, the ideal and the material, are playing out in the current situation that we are living. I would say perhaps just to start with the issue of the ideal home, but I think the current situation we're in places the home as an ideal under tremendous pressure. So homes have always had, well, for a very long time anyway, homes have had an important psychological and emotional function for people who live in them. And I think now, because we've had a lot of other things removed from our lives, home is being asked to play a greater and more important role. So actually, I think we're placing tremendous pressure on the ideal of home at the moment. I'd absolutely agree with that. I think um, the relationship between the public and the private is central to an understanding of the home and it changes and it flexes, but it's central to a, what I would describe as a sort of a modern conception of the home and the digital technologies we're currently using, where we're, we're literally getting views into people's private spaces. is challenging in many different ways. And certainly when I'm reflecting on my interactions with my colleagues and seeing the kind of the domestic pressures and challenges which I think Jane has just described sort of playing out before me in a very lived real way I think it does indeed challenge the notion of the home as an ideal I think one of the things it reveals is actually the ideal is often a very public prescription and the lived reality is often at some distance from that I'd like to ask you a little bit more about this this notion of the ideal and where does that come from? It's something we were talking about before we started recording, how this notion of home gets constituted. And I think, Trevor, you've mentioned this ideal of privacy. And, and Jane, you've talked about how there's a lot of pressure that's being exercised on the home. So what's the sort of genealogy? Obviously, this is a really complex history. But if you had to select some key moments, what sort of chapters would you select or how would you tell that story? Well, I think, as you say, it's a complicated question and we need to go quite far back in time to answer it. I mean, if we're going to look at British history, then actually home as a word was being used in some forms in the medieval period. But really, the notion of the home as a private space, a space that should be separate from the outside world, really kind of starts to take hold in the 18th century. And then it's really in the 19th century that I would argue that that ideal becomes very widely culturally perpetuated in a number of different forms and very widely kind of accepted and celebrated. So I think the home as an ideal has got a very long history. And I think that actually in a Victorian period, it was particularly the middle classes who were responsible for creating this idea of the home as a sanctuary, as somewhere where you could retreat from the industrialised world and live out an ideal and virtuous family life. I think um, a couple of things that I think are interesting in, in that moment in the 19th century is, as Jane said, the, uh, the middle class very much form and project that ideal. But actually, it's quite it's quite fluid. It's an ideal that then 
permeates into the working classes as and when they get the opportunity to do that because obviously the working classes of that period didn't have the material means to have the kind of differentiated spaces and that separation of work in quite the same way. I think another thing that's interesting is we talk about domesticity and and, and the home generally but actually culturally it is very specific. The UK and possibly the English experience of home is very different from perhaps a, a continental understanding of home. Um, so, you know, that 19th century conception of domesticity and the home as a private sphere really begins to typify a notion of certainly of Englishness. And it becomes it takes on something of a national character, I think. There's some really interesting diff- threads that come up there. On the one hand, there's this question of spaces and design of the home. And you spoke, Trevor, I think of the demarcation of spaces and there being a class element. So I wonder if, if you could both say a little bit more about that. And then secondly, as a follow up from that, this question of national identity and what do you think this at the moment is also you know, playing out in a certain way? Yeah, I think in terms of the use of space, I mean, as a 19th 19th century historian, that's something I've been really interested in because the 19th century is often seen as a high point for the demarcation of space in the home, the allocation of certain spaces to certain functions and the creation of very sharp divides within the home between sort of different kinds of spaces. So thinking about different spaces for servants and the family in a middle class home or thinking about different spaces for different functions. So a drawing room, a dining room, a confined space for the bringing up of children, a nursery within the home. So during the Victorian period, period, there was a very strong emphasis on this kind of demarcation of space. And in fact, as historians, I think we would be quite critical of those kinds of spatial demarcations. Often they reflected a social hierarchy which we no longer subscribe to. So a distinct class hierarchy, the separation of masters and servants, but also a gendered hierarchy. So the allocation of a closed off study to the man of the house where he could pursue his important endeavours separate from the family, for example. But interestingly, right now, actually, I think maybe there's something that we can learn from that mode of spatial demarcation. And actually having sort of clearly marked out spaces within the home may be something that is becoming more useful to us right now in this particular historical moment. Although, of course, I think it's very important not to repeat the way in which space was demarcated in a 19th century home, because it obviously reflected a profoundly patriarchal and deeply unequal society. I think that's a really interesting point. One of the things I would note about the current situation is we are, I think, as you say, Jane, moving back to some sort of sense of demarcation of the Victorian home. But of course, we now live in very different sorts of homes. So what I'm seeing when I'm working with colleagues and even to myself to some degree is a sort of a rezoning and a renegotiation of the space Mm. of the house. I think this is particularly telling if we just think about, you know, the kind of scenario where you've got two home working parents who are also running a school and possibly a creche. The the challenges people are facing at this moment are actually spatialised challenges. Mm. Um, I've been in many meetings where suddenly the children come in and, you know, the the whole thing comes to collide. And I think that's particularly interesting because, as Jane noted, in the 19th century, the workspace within a home, a man's workspace, is very clearly demarcated. And it's a space with a door and you close the door and then you enter back into the space of the home. And so that's certainly the case in the middle class home. Now we, we've lost that ability to distinguish. And I think that's particularly challenging perhaps for women 
because actually the balance of domesticity and professional life was has always been a very challenging and uneasy fault line for women in the workplace if we think about the equality of gender in the workplace and now I think we're seeing some of that uneasy challenge re-emerging in the home. I completely agree with that. I mean, again, actually, gender divides in the home is something, um, again, I'm quite interested in as a historian. And although I think sort of the main trend in the 19th century was to organise space in the favour of the man of the house, what is interesting is at the time, there were some female domestic advice writers who tried to um, reclaim the space of the home for women, particularly Mm. arguing for the use of a morning room as a kind of private space for the woman of the house where she could pursue her work. And so Again, although I think we should be very critical of those kinds of Victorian narratives, at the same time, I think some of them do point to some potentially useful models, actually, for finding a way forward in terms of dividing up space in the home in a more equal and in a way that can actually work for the kind of very difficult working practices families are facing at the moment. And I think that although we're all facing a very difficult time, people are also, I think, working to find new ways of dividing things up between them. And in in some ways, I think sort of the way this whole situation has brought the work that parents do in caring for small children alongside doing their jobs, I think in a way it's highlighted it. And it's highlighted the need, I think, moving forward after this to come up with working structures that help support people when they're doing that. I would really agree with that. I think there are some really valuable lessons coming out of the way we're working now. I was interested at the beginning of the lockdown, I read an interesting newspaper article just about the challenge this was posing to Japanese work culture. This cultural distinction becomes really important because there's a very high profile kind of culture of presenteeism, getting in early, being there late. And the distinction between the home life and the workplace is so marked. And locking down and people having to work from home is fundamentally, the article was basically arguing that it's fundamentally challenging some of those assumptions and suppositions. And the question was, would working life in Tokyo, for example, change afterwards? And it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in different um, national and working contexts. But I think returning to Jane's point, I think there are a lot of things that institutions and organisations can really gain from this experience in better understanding the kind of work situations that their colleagues and teams actually need in balancing that work-life balance. And I'd like to take us to thinking further about how the traditional boundaries between what is or isn't home are being increasingly blurred at the moment. So, for example, there's many activities that we often would do outside the home, which are now taking place within the domestic environment. And this exerts greater pressure on that separation between domestic and non-domestic spaces especially for those people who live in very small spaces who would have previously relied much more on the world outside for activities that now they have to do at home. Yeah, I mean, I think this certainly places a lot more emphasis on the immediate spaces we inhabit. And as a historian, I've been really interested in how people manage to create a sense of home or domesticity in confined or restricted circumstances. And one of my research projects looked at how people manage to feel at home or domesticity is created in institutional spaces. And in particular, I was interested in asylums, lodging houses and schools. And I think that 
actually people have the capacity to make themselves at home in quite physically limited spaces. And I think sort of a crisis like this really throws that into relief, if you like, and really draws our attention to how actually we can create a sense of emotional security through quite small domestic acts. I've always been a big fan of the novelist Barbara Pym, who I think who really celebrates small acts of domesticity, like putting a flower in a vase or cooking a meal. And actually, I think um, there are some very positive ways in which we can sort of start to see this kind of restricted domesticity working. Obviously, I'm, you know, I don't want to be overly positive here, but that's one suggestion. I think it's a really interesting suggestion. One of the things that interests me is the way in which actually, to flip it around, people domesticate the workplace. And, and that flower in a vase is actually one of the ways of doing it. One of the other interesting ways, and I think this is pertinent to the experience we're currently having with digital communication media, where we're basically talking to one another through screens, is actually the, the role of photography and photographic screensavers. I remember being in a conversation a number of years ago with someone where there were a few of us and actually emerged a real divide between who puts personal photographs on a screensaver and who doesn't. And there was this idea about blurring a boundary, you know, some people wanting to bring family, domesticity, mm. home to workspace, and some people very clearly wanting to demarcate it. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges at this moment, where actually the demarcation is simply not possible. But I, I, I really like that idea of, um, and I think um, that Jane mentioned, of the ways in which people domesticate, even in small spaces. And, and that can be external to the home. I think that's actually a key point. People kind of inhabit I think it's part of a perpetual kind of desire somehow to inhabit and make place. You're listening to That Feels Like Home. I'm Anna Baetha and I'm talking today to Jane Hamlet and Trevor Keeble. We've been discussing the origins of home as a space and how it's evolved over time. And now we're going to move on to talking about how it feels under lockdown when others enter our most private space. Before we do that, here's a short extract from an interview with one of our listeners as to how, for a lot of people, COVID may have challenged the sense of privacy. I'm sure everybody's been feeling this, is how you can feel like 150 people have gone through your home in a day. And that that's actually quite a difficult one to deal with psychologically. You do sometimes feel like crowds of people have walked through your sitting room by the end of the day. And that's quite a strange psychological and I wanted to ask you about how the sense of privacy that you've been connecting to the home might be specially jeopardized now. Homes are being displayed in public and semi-public online gatherings, and so this puts into relief even more the uncomfortable separation of the inside and the outside, doesn't it? Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? There's been quite an interesting Twitter feed on the way in which people in the media portray themselves with books in the background or otherwise. And <laughs> comments on it were a little bit, um, yes, there were some rather judgmental comments about people's books. I think Monty Dom and Ed Miliband came out of it very well. They're bookshelves earned a lot of praise um, <laughs> other people's work being um, dismissed rather harshly so in a way actually in that sense it's it's rather fun and it, it sort of does allow us to kind of see some celebrities in a different way but actually it is actually a more serious issue and um, you know sort of there are potential issues around people's privacy that you know mean that 
it's not always good to be able to sort of, you know, show yourself or your home through a camera in this way. And of course, actually, some of the online meetings that we're all having are sometimes vulnerable for security reasons and so forth. So it is it is problematic as well. But I have to say, in some respect, it, it's certainly been fun. I would agree. I think certainly at the beginning of this lockdown period, the peering into other people's home was perhaps the most fun part of it. It reminds me of a um, one of the late 19th century's domestic design advice writers was actually Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde used to make a fair buck out of writing taste advice. There's a very interesting quote where he rails against big windows and he does so because he doesn't want the thought of people looking in, mm-hmm. which is obviously a very prescient thing for Wilde with his private life. But that idea of the screen and people peering in, what one of the things it reminds me is that the home, first and foremost, is very much a personal identification. It's personal, but it's also familial. And so that idea of the home and the home you create is a manifestation of yourself. It's about selfhood. And so I, it's been interesting watching people consciously and at times unconsciously shape their background, as it were, their backdrop. And I think at the beginning of the lockdown, I think people were intensely conscious of this. And I think as the weeks have rolled on, people are just really not bothering now. One of the things, interestingly, um, Jane and I both work in universities and we're, we're currently challenged with, you know, thinking about next academic year and how we're going to deliver. And there's going to be a chance that it'll be online delivery. And mm-hmm. and whilst we've been dealing with this in the current year, we're, we're having to think ahead, certainly in my university, is that we must make it look more professional and we must have some sort of brand identity and we must have some sort of backdrop. And that's actually about taking the home out of it. Mm-hmm. It's about inscribing. And I think that's really quite interesting and certainly some people have been using, um, there are softwares where you can have a backdrop. So you're actually not showing your home. I had a meeting a few weeks ago with a partner colleague at another institution where he literally was sat in front of the Golden Gate Bridge, where there was this <laughs> huge drama of San Francisco behind him. And I just thought that was really fascinating because it's a very conscious choice to not show your home. Yeah, universities are are facing this challenge of how best to move towards online teaching and how best to create a kind of online projection of lecturers are as we are and what we do. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think that issue of, of what the backdrop is, is really, really interesting and really crucial. I mean, it's a tricky area, isn't it? Because I think as well, I do think sort of showing people's backdrops potentially exposes inequality, doesn't it? And actually, unfortunately, we do have quite a lot of inequality within our teaching system, people on different kinds of contracts and so on and so forth. And I think that's also actually an issue in terms of how we display ourselves. And as Trevor says, perhaps the best way is to have a, a standard backdrop that doesn't, you know, detracts from those issues, perhaps. Well, I think that's certainly what the university would like. I'm not sure we'd like that. I like the idea of watching people in their own domestic environments. And and I think there's also a, there's a sort of yes. pretense in having the backdrop as though we're actually in a lecture theatre. It feels slightly more artificial. But you, you're, you're absolutely right about the inequality. And I think that, that, that sits in that sensitivity around the consciousness of people in their environments. People are acutely aware of this. You know, there are very few things that are as aspirational and media and image driven than the home so much to the material and 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 this goes historically so much of the material whether it's through design advice or whether it's through popular media right from the late 19th century right through into the 20th century is absolutely aspirational it's about telling people how they should live or how Mm -hmm. they should want 
and uh, and that that sets up an anxiety you know there's there's a lot of work been done on on the role of social media and personal mental health and there are significant critiques around social media and actually it makes people unhappy and that's in part because mm. people themselves when they're consuming social media what they're actually consuming is the most aspirational presentation of their colleagues or their friends their social life it's not actually real Jane you've mentioned the spatial inequalities that might become more visible through this digital communication but Trevor you also hinted how a certain aspirationalism might also obscure that especially in the ways that people use social media so i wanted to discuss Jane's point a bit further because already before lockdown many people have been in insecure and unsafe housing but now the ways in which the sense of home might be even further unmade or eroded either because you can't afford it or because you live 24/7 in quite cramped conditions so this has really become exacerbated now hasn't it hmm. yeah i mean i think i probably go back to that idea of home being placed under pressure and i think that applies to home as an ideal but i think being in our homes all the time and focusing on them very closely makes us scrutinize our physical environments more intensely so we might suddenly become very aware of you know some decorating that we've failed to do for the last 10 years but actually you know it's sort of screaming screaming to be done now because we're looking at looking at the sort of paint flaking off every day but more broadly i do think that actually um you know it prompts us to be more reflective and think more about the spaces we're inhabiting and perhaps about the restrictions on those spaces i mean something that i've reflected on quite a lot during this period is that actually yes in london particularly many people are living in quite small spaces and that is a product of the current property market the current kind of economic system and you know that system has really produced a situation in which access to space is profoundly unequal really and i think that has been really kind of exacerbated by this crisis i mean i would say however that you know obviously there is no point in history where we've not had an unequal social system in which some people have been able to access more space than others but i would say that in the past decade or so the particular situation and the particular conditions involved in the property market in, in britain at this point have really kind of exacerbated that divide I would agree absolutely with that point. I think the lockdown situation and and actually covid itself has really exposed and exacerbated inequalities and made vulnerable people more vulnerable. I think one of the things that I find really interesting is local authorities have actually housed homeless people and I find it really um outrageous in many ways that it takes a pandemic to think about homing homeless people putting them in housing and putting roofs above their head. I think um the entire kind of lockdown period has shifted that balance in the privatized family and then community and i think it's redrawn boundaries and i think that's happening in a number of ways i think you know if we just think about the the difference between being in your own home being in a care home at this moment i think that's been a really interesting problematic challenge one of the challenges that we've seen played out in the press and and in personal lives for those of us that have family or relatives who are social care workers is moving from a private home into a care home and that's been one of the real fault lines in this virus and transmission 
But then it goes beyond that. Even things like, you know, on a Thursday evening, standing out in the street and clapping for the NHS is actually an interesting act of community. And one of the questions I would have, or one of the things I've been wondering, is the extent to which that community might sustain beyond COVID. Mm. Um, we're, we're seeing community food and community support schemes now in ways that, you know, we've always had them, but there's a sort of a visibility and there's a kind of a recognition of need, which, you know, I, I, I certainly hope will continue. And it's interesting when you see some of the government action and government response. Um, I read something earlier this morning about the state being back. You know, of all of all the governments, this is the government which, in a sense, is now having to go big state through its furloughing scheme and all of its support schemes. And that's interesting because I think it opens up the question about the need for community, but also actually for sharing of resource. And that's a, that, that's a kind of a question that doesn't get addressed enough. And it, it fundamentally underpins inequalities. And I think the point Jane made about the housing situation in London over the past 10 years or so is, is absolutely key to that. Yeah, and obviously we've we've heard a lot um, in this respect about connections being made to previous crises. Uh, and I'm thinking especially of the Second World War. And what do you make of these comparisons to that previous historical moment? And how do you think things might unfold? I mean, I think that the way the comparison with the Second World War has been mobilised is slightly problematic, actually. And I think that we like to think of the Second World War as this moment of great kind of communal effort where everyone pulled together. And to a certain extent, that's true. But I think we forget about the fact that actually during the Second World War, um, a lot went on that actually revealed class difference and a lot of people also um sort of in some cases you know we can look at something like evacuation which actually caused a lot of class tension and class conflict so i don't entirely agree that the second world war was a moment of great communal pulling together and i think this has been quite widely questioned by historians who've talked about the idea of the myth of the blitz which becomes mm. Um, something that's celebrated um, and promoted in British post-war culture, really. So, I mean, to me, it's interesting how, as a sort of nation, we return again and again to the Second World War as this mm. key national moment. But as a historian, I, I'm, you know, I, th- I think the sort of communal nature of, of the Second World War is somewhat overstated. I think the mobilisation of the war as a metaphor for the experience we're having now is, mm. is, if I'm honest, I find it really inappropriate in so mm. many ways. Yeah. Um, and it does hark back again to this sort of slightly strange national psyche thing around Britishness. Mm. Up a bit. I can't help but think it's all very post-Brexit because it is. <laughs> you know, it, it's playing into the very similar sort of myths that were. Uh, and ideas and values that um, were mobilised politically and are being mobilised politically. The point that for me that's interesting is the comparison actually with the immediately post-war moment, because what we see in the post-war moment um, is we see home actually becomes quite central to to reconstruction Mm. nation and the national way of life. And that in itself is political in so many ways. I mean, one of the things that happens immediately upon you know the, the the war we we get the the, the Labour government coming in and they, it's a big state government it has to be because it's dealing with a period of um, crisis you know we see the formation of the NHS and we see in the late 40s but through into the 50s we we see the kind of really large scale building program around social housing 
But, you know, that's also mirrored by we also see a sort of a re, what's been described as a repatriation of women into the home because actually they then retreat from the workplace in certain areas, not in all areas, obviously. But, you know, we start seeing a retrenching of earlier boundaries and distinctions and, um, and understandings of the home. But we also then through the, the social housing programme, which is about the creation of new towns in some ways, we actually see a fragmentation of family networks that fundamentally change domestic conditions. You know, those houses are testing out new programmatic ideas that have been developing in previous years, but, you know, are really put to the test. You know, what we would describe as being modern ideas, modernist ideas. And, and, and they are definitely new homes. They're new, new um, homes uh, in terms of their internal configuration, but then in their density, blocks of flats, you know, large scale mass dwelling. And so I think that, that there's a very um, interesting moment there. And, and I, for me, just thinking about some of the work that's been done on the new towns and the social fragmentation where people are moved away from their families, you see a breakdown of um, familial network, which was essential to work and earning a living. And now, obviously, that is a, that's something that's come back into sharp relief in terms of COVID-19, because obviously grandparents are currently in our day and age become a means of kind of sustaining living once again. You know, grandparents look after children when people are going out to work. There's obviously childcare as well, but that's hugely expensive. COVID-19 has actually fragmented that once again. So actually, parents really are losing the wider support networks that enable them to kind of do their work. Yeah, and I'd like to push this a bit further because, as you say, Trevor, the immediate post-war period was a time of retrenchment where the nuclear family becomes the primary site of social reproduction, but also other ways of living emerge that challenge this. So how might we be in a similarly historically significant moment in which living configurations and arrangements are being tested and tried out? I think, you know, I, I think there are, you know, the post-war moment is, you know, there is a sort of a retrenchment, but there's a huge amount of progress as well. And, you know, I mean, the building of new homes was a hugely important step forward. And it's something that I think we, most people, I think with that knowledge, we need to do now. And yet it's so deeply contested between the public and the private sector. Um, I actually live in Chichester on the south coast. And if you try and build anything around here, you, you'll get the whole city chasing after you. I mean, it's a very heavily protected and restricted area. So, you know, we have to begin to really rise, you know, overcome some really quite significant challenges around house building in particular and providing for our society. So I think there are some comparisons between then and now. I think, you know, in part it is around increasing home ownership. We saw the democratisation of home ownership in the 1980s. We saw a, a, a supposed democratisation through the, the right to buy scheme where people bought their council houses. And, and whilst on the one hand that really did um, deepen people's investment and their ownership and their ability to build place and create homes and have permanence, that has had knock-on effects into later years, into this generation, where they simply don't have the social housing that people need. So just to go back to what you were saying about the household and the family and the impact of the current crisis on this, I think this is actually something that's really quite interesting to reflect on if we think about 
change in a historical perspective. And in fact, actually how we define the family in relation to the household has changed a great deal over time. So in the early modern period, people often thought of family not always as something that was held together by ties of kinship or, or blood relations, but actually family was often constituted by the people that lived in a household. So that might include a husband, wife and children, but also perhaps apprentices who um, worked in that particular household. And actually, I think sort of the current situation is forcing us to perhaps find new um, relationships and new bonds with people who we are living close at hand with. So perhaps, you know, if you're sharing a flat at the moment with flatmates, those people are taking on a new importance to you. And perhaps you might be starting to think of them almost as members of your family. Hopefully, you know, if, if things are going well and you're in a situation where everyone gets on and it's not conflictual, actually, in some ways, the situation might be sort of strengthening bonds. I think Jane raises a really interesting point there that really highlights the fact that actually the family now is a, is a, a very different thing to perhaps the mid 20th century. So going back to the earlier point, that was very much about reinforcing the notion of the nuclear family. Family is constituted and home is constituted as a consequence very, very differently. Again, there was an interesting point at the beginning of the lockdown period about how do, how do children who have uh, separated parents, what's their experience going to be? How do they move between two homes? And, you know, that really cuts to the very heart of uh, the challenge for a dual family child, in a way. Yeah, and I think what you're saying further challenges that mythical ideal of the happy home inherited from Victorian times through to the post-Second World War period. So my question to you is, might the current moment spark a new understanding of the home as a different sort of emotional space that doesn't correspond to that idea of the happy home? Yes, I mean, I think sort of obviously one of the very negative sides of the situation we find ourselves in is that because people are having to spend more time within their homes, that is exacerbating family tensions and problems that might otherwise perhaps not have surfaced. And of course, you know, very sadly, one of the consequences of all this is, is um, a rise mm. in domestic yeah. violence. So, yes, and I think that, of course, very clearly challenges our notion of the home as this kind of private, safe, peaceful space, which is often cherished and perpetuated. But actually, I think the situation we're in is a reminder, really, that for mm many people that simply doesn't exist yeah and you know that that has been the case for a very long time I mean domestic violence unfortunately is still a big problem in our society now just as it was in the 19th and in the 20th centuries I think the, the idea of the happy home again it, it is part of this mythology around the home for me it raises the question around comfort um, the home is supposedly the place of comfort. It's a place of safety and, and, and haven. And again, you can be comfortable in public places. But there has been some writing around this. You know, homes, homes are places of threat. There are places of violence in some instances. And, and again, that exposes the challenge or the tension between a notion of the home as a private place, because privacy can be thought to be a really positive, comfortable um, and comforting thing but privacy can also be about secrecy it can be about things cl happening behind closed doors so 
that's one of the challenges. And I think it's, I, I think as Jane has described, it's perpetuated and it has always been there. And um, it's in tension with the ideal. I'd like to move on to a slightly different topic, which is related to your most recent research, Jane, about emotions, homes and pets. Because during lockdown, a lot of people have been getting pets as domestic companions. So I think this is a sort of rich topic to explore at the moment. Yeah, so I've been, um, as part of the project I've been working on with Julie Marie Strange, we've been looking at people's emotional relationship with pet animals and how that's changed over time. And I think one of the things we were expecting to find at the beginning of our project was that that bond, if you like, would increase over time, that people would become more emotionally engaged with pets. And I think what we found is that actually the way people construct that relationship has changed and that um, is very much to do with the culture that surrounds them. But actually, we've gone back to the beginning of the Victorian period, but actually what remains throughout the period and seems to be really continuous is a very strong emotional investment in pets. So we thought we were going to find that people became more emotionally invested in pets over time, but I don't think that's happened. I do think, though, that the current situation has really... Um, highlighted people's emotional investment in pets and has rendered that emotional investment more valuable. So we're seeing lots of people trying to adopt dogs, which is also in some ways a bit problematic because obviously a dog is not just for the COVID crisis, it's for life. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, um, that, mm -hmm. that is a bit tricky. But also we're seeing people really valuing their pets. So I'm seeing more pet, more and more pets on social media. On my road at the moment, we've got a WhatsApp group and people are sort of very actively sharing pictures of the doings of their pet cats during the day. Um, so I, I've learned the names of quite a few pet cats on our road. But I, you know, I've seen these animals from day to day for a number of years. Um, but now I know what they're called because we've been communicating about them, which has actually been been great but I do think pets have a very important role to play in many people's domestic lives and I do think the current situation has really really highlighted that. One of the things I've enjoyed the most about the lockdown period and having lots and lots of screen meetings is the points at which the pets invade. <laughs> uh, I, I have two dogs who have, have taken a while actually to remember that I'm working at the top of the house and I'm not actually at work and and it's just interesting when they kind of appear and the enjoyment is, is is interesting. People like it when their pets show up. And I think that's an interesting indication of people wanting to share something of their domestic life. I think it's, you know, it's because the pet is a very, very personal thing. And, uh, you know, it demonstrates that kind of and it is a familial bond, you know, the family dog or the family cat or I think Jane's point about uh, a pet not being just for COVID, I read an article at the very beginning of the lockdown and for some people talking about how glad they were that they got this new puppy because it would preoccupy them and it would give the children something to do. Yeah. And when I read it, I just thought, oh my God, they're going to have a nightmare because that dog is going to grow up in puppyhood thinking people are around them all the time. And and uh, yeah, you just you can imagine the kind of horrors that are going to be in store for that the, those people when they start going to school and work. And the puppy is chewing their house apart. But I, th I think I think the pets have become really central. And again, I come back to the earlier point about comfort. I think our pets bring us comfort. 
Brilliant. I think we can come to an end. But before we round off, I just wanted to get some reflections from you both as to how the homes of the future might look like, given everything that we've been experiencing as individuals and collectively during this time period. Well, I think it's very difficult to know um, for anyone at the moment where all this is going to go. But I think one inevitable consequence will be that we are a bit more aware of our home environments, actually. And I think some people might think more about where their homes are located. So there's been a lot of, you know, sort of the position of people who are living in rural areas and the position of people who are living in cities is very different right now. And I think I think this will make people reflect more on the choices in terms of where they locate their home and what surrounds them. I mean, you know, because it's possible this kind of situation will occur again. So I think I think people are going to think a bit more about how they locate their homes. I also think, you know, slightly more lightheartedly, people are obviously paying a bit more attention to things like DIY and stuff. So we're now seeing, you know, mm-hmm. garden centres opening up again, they're absolutely packed out. But when people are allowed to sort of go to DIY shops and buy things and that kind of thing. So I think we, you know, not to sort of overdraw the comparison with the post-war period, but one of the things that we saw in the 1950s was a um, DIY boom. And I think we might see something similar after this too. I think you're right. I think it's interesting how um, people have navigated shops being closed. eBay and Amazon have done quite a bit of um, sales in DIY materials if they're available because people are, are using the the time that they have on their hands to look at that paintwork or mend something or do something and and I think it, it is as you say Jane you know people may feel more invested in their homes and start looking at them anew. I think the point about where people live is a really interesting one because I think a lot of people have realised you don't necessarily have to be right in the centre of things you can actually work at a distance I think we may see, you know, some real geographic shifts happening. And of course, we might not. Home home is actually, it changes and it does change over time, but it also remains incredibly consistent. One of the uh, things that designers love doing and they've always loved doing is imagining the homes of the future. And they're never quite as uh, revolutionary or innovative as we like to think they are. We are probably more technologically uh, enabled and equipped than we've ever been in our domestic lives previously. But the homes actually look quite similar. You know, the homes actually feel and are styled in in, in similar ways. They're they're totally electronic and you can shout at your lights and put them on or shout at your fridge and turn it off or do whatever. But, you know, the actual place themselves remains remarkably consistent. There are obviously, um, you know, precedents, you know, things like the the emergence of television and and large scale mass adoption of television in the 1950s actually really shifts, uh, reorients things like the sitting room or the lounge and and takes away from the hearth. In some cases, people have written about the fact that the hearth actually shifts and the, the television becomes the focal point. But then, of course, as we move through the 20th century, the television then migrates into a personalized object sitting in lots of different rooms. And I think, you know, We'll kind of see more of that. But at the heart of it, I think the homes do remain quite consistent. Uh, Well, thank you very much, Trevor and Jane. It's been truly fascinating to discuss with you all the histories and and changes brought about by COVID in our homes. Uh, So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
A huge thanks to my guests for this episode, Jane Hamlet from Royal Holloway University and Trevor Keeble from the University of Portsmouth for joining us in this very engaging discussion around the histories of home as a concept and as a place, and for offering their personal reflections on the many changes that the pandemic has brought to domestic life. In this episode, you also heard the voices of Matthew Paternal, Rebecca Bell and Anne-Lise van der Ven, who lent their impressions of home life during lockdown and we're very grateful for their contributions. If you'd also like to take part in the podcast, do get in touch with us emailing moda at mdx.ac.uk. I'm Anna Baeza, and this podcast is brought to you by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, Middlesex University. For more information about this episode, show notes, and reading list, please visit our website, moda.mdx.ac.uk. We'll be back again with episodes touching on yet more aspects of home life and the everyday under COVID. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.